Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta and Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachet Sukkah, DAP Nun Vav, page 56. Well, we are finally at the end of this Masachet. Uh, thank you to everybody who joined us for our Siyum, which was a couple of days earlier. Um, we had a great presentation from Na'uk Kedumim with Ellie Waller. Uh, if you were not able to join us, we know that it was a very busy Sunday for people. The recording is available. Um, also want to remind people we are about to start Matzachat Beisah tomorrow and are now going to begin pre- six pretty intense months of six Masechtot. We're going to average around about a seam a month. So that's going to be exciting. And I guess to use this as an opportunity, if you have any friends who you think may want to join our Talking Talmud uh, virtual Beit Midrash, this is a great time for people to join us. Um, I think for people who are just getting started with Gemara learning, these next few masachtot are really great masachtot uh, to sort of start learning with. And even if you're an experienced learner, uh, I think it's a good time to sort of pick up the pace uh, or to start with the Adapyomi project. So we look forward to continuing our learning with you. Um, so let's move on to this last stop. So I'm going to handle some of the stuff in Ahmed Aleph. Anne's going to go to Ahmed Bet. Um, one of the things that really struck me about this stop is how much is sort of packed into it. There's so many different topics here. We get to, you know, beginning with how were some of the things distributed in the Beit HaMikdash. And again, that's sort of starting with an interesting tidbit that we have not seen yet um, in uh, Shkalim or Yoma or Psachim of like the actual day-to-day functioning. So here we get the source for like how the Lechem HaPanim was distributed and why it was distributed with all of the Mishmarot. Um, and we go to, um, you know, you know, we have a, a, a whole Mishnah here that has to do with what you do with Shabbos before Yom Tov with the Lechem Apanim, and finally ending uh, with this, you know, very interesting story about the Mishmar of Bilga. But one of the things here that I thought was great on this particular daf, because I always like sort of these patterns when we sort of see the same halachic concepts appear, is the following discussion that Rubs brings about the sukkah itself. And again, it's fascinating that it appears only on the last daf. We really spent our time talking about the sukkah in the first two prakim, but this appears at the end. So I want to pay attention to one really interesting discussion that appears on this staff. I always like when we see uh, halachic um, concepts or principles appear from masachet to masachet. And it's interesting that the discussion that takes place on this staff appears here because you would have thought this would have been a discussion in one of the first two prakim where we were dealing with all the halachot of sukkah. And instead, it appears here really on our last stop. And so it reads as follows. Itama Rav, right? So Rav basically, um, Rav basically says here, right? Amar So Rav says that when you go into the sukkah, the first bracha you're going to make is the one on sukkah, right? And the second one is going to be on time, right? Rabba Barbarachana Marzman Bachar Kach Sukkah. Rabba Barbarachana says, no, first you would make the bracha on time, the Shahriyanu, and then you would make the bracha of Leshe Basukkah. So then the Gemara goes on to say, Rabba Marzukkah Bachar Kachman, Chiyuba Diyuma Adim. So what's the reason for Rav? Because it's the obligation of the day that takes precedence, meaning you're only making the Shahriyanu because you have this obligation to be in the Sukkah. So you're going to mention the Sukkah obligation first, then you'll get to the Shahriyanu. So again, that's a principle we've seen many times. 
Rav of Rabbi says, no, we do Zman and then Sukkah because the more common of those brachot is the Shehechianu, right? There's a multitude of places where we say that all throughout the year. And Sukkah is the le- least common, is a lesser common bracha. And so that's why we say that less because of the Tadir and Sheino Tadir Kodem. Um, and so then they go on to sort of say like, okay, what other machloket could we sort of uh, say is in parallel to this? Lema Rav 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 Rachana Bipilukta Debeit Shammai Ubeit Hillel Kama Plige, right? And so what we're going to say is in the end that maybe this is similar to the machlokas of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel uh, that we saw. And this was a machlokas that we learned about before, right? The Tanu Rabbanan. So this, you know, Bryce basically teaches us that when Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel have a machlokas, talking about the halachot of a meal, Beit Shammai would say, when you say Kiddush over the wine, you're going to say the sanctification of the day, right? right? If it's Yantif, then afterwards you'll say the one over the wine. And Beit Hillel would say, no, you would say wine, and then you would say the blessing over the day. And then the Gemara is going to go on to explain why does Beit Shammai have his opinion, right? Because he believes that basically this is part I'll, I'll just say outside, because in other words, you're going to say the day and then the, the wine, because the day has already been sanctified. In other words, it's now Shabbos, Yantip, whatever it is. And the wine hasn't been yet. So since Shabbos was sanctified first, right, it's already Shabbos when you're making Kiddush, you're going to mention Shabbos first, and then you'll mention the wine. Whereas Beit Hillel would say, if there was no wine, there's no Kiddush. So you're going to say wine, and then you're going to say Kiddush. Or the other reason we get for Hillel is, again, invoking this principle of Tadir, you know, no Tadir, Tadir Kodim. Again, this principle, what's more common? And it's always going to be more common to make a bracha over wine before you make the bracha over whether it's going to be Shabbat or something like that. And then they go on to show what the parallel is with Rav and Rav Barachana. So I thought this was a great example of really trying to find a parallel within Halakha. Here it has to do with Sukkah and Shechianu and bringing it over to, you know, this very famous Machlokas of Hill. And we see the Tadir no Tadir Tadir Kodem principle. Um, and uh, I don't understand why it appears on the last daf. Again, I think we, I'm surprised it didn't pop up in the first or second parak. But it's always interesting to see sort of like, where does the principle of Tadir come up in a different area of halachan? So we see it here again with sukkah. Um, so what I was going to say here is that for all that what you've been able to do here is bring the Masachat Sukkah, but also the themes of Sukkah to relate to all these other topics, I feel like the final Mishnah on our daf and the final bit of our daf kind of jumps very far away from all of that, all of this familiar, and they bring it back to the Beit HaMikdash, um, and, and we'll see. So for those of you who have were at our Siyom al Sunday or have already watched or listened to the recording, um, you will recognize this material because, of course, we close a seum with the end material of the Masechet. Um, But we're going to try to take it a little bit slower here and and unpack it a little bit more. Yom Tov HaSamuch LeShabbat Ben Milifana Ben Lacharea When Yantif falls out uh, next to Shabbos, meaning it is either Friday or it is Sunday, meaning Saturday night, right? Now, so that sounds like it's the same 
um, you know, general, more general applicable halacha that your Dana that you were talking about. We're going to see in a moment that it's going to jump to the mishmarot, as you said already, um, and that brings us right back to the but uh, the Beit Hamikdash. So every time that they would give out, that they would divide out uh, the the showbread of um, that's it's supposed to go to the watches that would you know they would come early or they would leave late because Shabbos because Yantif is coming out next to Shabbos. Meaning, usually if they're going to come on a Friday or on a Sunday, so they're not coming on Shabbos. But here they have to arrive early or arrive late because of the the placement of the holiday right next to Shabbos. Chaliot yom achad bin time. Mishmash is mano kavua. Hayan hotel eser chalot mitakev hotel shtaim. So what happens if there's a day between the holiday and Shabbos or Shabbos and the holiday? Supposed to be there and that's scheduled to be there would take 10 of the 12 loaves and the watch that is delayed after the Chag Right, because there's not enough time to get home before Shabbos, they get two loaves. Meaning, it's not really their their turn, but they're not going to let them starve. Right, this is their this is their bread for the time that they're there, that they're there in the Beit Hamikdash. And this is like uh, this is will always be one of those, you know, the Mishnah reaching the halacha, diving in in the exception case, and then coming down to the basic line of you know the everyday case. Literally every day. So the those coming in, the watch that's coming in gets six loaves, and the watch going out gets six loaves. And of course, then a week later, when they when they swap, right? I mean, then the ones that are coming out that are going out will get the six, and the ones coming in will get the next six. Like that's it seems that it's usually very fair and organized, and it just gets complicated because of the, you're not going to travel on Yantif, so they have to accommodate the to feed the watch that sticks around or, or comes early, right? There's one either leaving late um, after the watch is over, they stick around, or one comes early and they get there in you know beforehand to make sure that nobody's traveling on Chag or for that matter Shabbos. But really, we're talking about Chag. So instead of it being six and six, Rabbi Huda says, "Well, always the incoming gets seven. And the outgoing takes five. Um, we have talked about all of this before. And I don't mean Sunday at the Sium, meaning we've talked about the Mishmarot and we've talked about the Lechem Apanim. Um, and God help me, I cannot remember exactly when it was because my memory, unfortunately, does not, I, I retain some amount of the information, but not necessarily when uh, or in what exact context we saw it. I mean, we've seen a lot of Beit HaMikdash you know, discussions before, not in Sukkah, I mean, in a different Masachet. So this too, we saw that they would eat um, the standard, right? The norm was that the people who were coming in, the Mishmai that was coming in, would sit down and they would eat their food. They would divide it up in the northern part of the of the Heichal, and those leaving would do so in the southern part. And so you could look, anybody coming in would see, oh, those are the incoming Mishmar people, and those who are leaving are over there in the south. Now we get to this story, and it's a little bit cryptic, and the mission of the Gemara will develop it. Bilga, Bilga, this watch that was named by, after Bilga, who seems to have been a person. 
Bilgal Yolam Cholaket Bedarom. Bilga, who this is the name of the watch, but it is also a person, the name of a person whose the watch was named after, or in his honor, I guess, except it's a dubious honor. Bilgal Yolam Cholaket Bedarom. This watch would always divide up the food, uh, the lechem apanim in the south, the south, the southern part of the heichal. V'tabatok fu'av achalonastuma. Now this is a little bit complicated. Um, what happens is that there's there's several different elements to what the watch would do, right? So that there's the lechem apanim, and this is what we're really talking about here in this mishnah. And then it talks about the, excuse me, the tabat, right? What is the tabat? So Rashi explains that there's the this particular watch um, was forced to use the rings of other watches. They would use this rings as part of the way that they would engage in the slaughter that they needed to do in the Beit HaMikdash. And so it's not clear. Like, did they, were they, it's some kind of punishment or humiliation for them, right? It's a, it's, they don't have the merit to have their own ring. They have to either, they're using the rings of other watches or they weren't permitted to use the rings at all Meaning, and in which case, then they have to do a whole different kind of procedure to be able to tie up the animals, slaughter the animals without having some kind of ring. So I, I don't really understand why it's translated to be a ring and not a, a yoke, um, because I, I don't know enough about what it meant to herd the animals or whatever to be able to then do the shrita. But in any case, they had this, as it says that the their ring was kavua, it was fixed, so that they somehow did not have uh, as much freedom to use this particular tool as other Mishmaot did. And the window, literally it's a window, but in this case it means that there's a, a niche in the wall. Now we're talking here about the Chamber of Knives, right? and that's where the Kohanim would store the knives and their vessels and everything else. And this niche, this chalona, this window, this area was sealed up so again, Rashi tells us, and it's not clear from the Mishnah what else we're talking about, and it's even not really clear from the Gemara, that Rashi explains that the Gemara was talking about a niche in this chamber of knives where they would store their knives, which, you know, makes sense enough, right, in terms of doing there. But then it seems to be that because it's sealed up, right, what's happening is that, again, this is some kind of punishment or penalty for this particular watch. But the mission is cryptic, and it doesn't tell us, you know, why, and it doesn't give us really any more details about this mishmar. Um, it does seem a little bit strange, I guess, even, in, you know, before we get to the Gemara, it seems a little bit strange that there would be a penalty that would last for each time, right? This seems to be the ongoing practice for the Watch of Bilga. And I don't know whether this would carry on for the next generation or if it was only when Bilga was still around. It does not seem to be... And the Gemara does not seem to take it as a penalty against the person whose name was Bilga, but rather the entire mat, uh, the entire watch. Okay, so I want to jump now, meaning, listen, there's more Gemara here on the same Mishnah, but I want to jump to this, the explication, the expansion of this puzzling and also somewhat historical narrative about what was that's going on in the Mishnah, what took place in the Beit HaMikdash. So, the the Gemara says as follows: So we know this, right? That the incoming watch would divide up the lechem apanim in the northern section of the courtyard, and then the outgoing people would, you know, divide it up in the in the south. Yes, and this is again in line with the brayta. 
כדי שיראו שהם נכנסים, ויוצאים חוקים בדרום, כדי שיראו שיוצאים, meaning that everybody can tell who's where, and then um, you can tell, you could see, meaning not just the people eat, doing this eating, but anybody else, all of the other Kohenim in passing, would know which crew was where, when, who's leaving, who's coming. Okay, now this story of Bilga. This is a tricky thing. Okay, so first of all, Bilga seems to have set up the, the, the watch of Bilga anyway, seems to have set up themselves up. Always eating. What that looks like is that they're always about to be leaving, right? Meaning they're dividing up the, the Lechem Apanim and they're in the south and their ring is fixed in place and their niche is closed up. They're going to, you know, head on out. It, um, which I suppose, you know, doesn't is part of what isn't reflecting very well on them. Like, you're not supposed to come do your service in the temple and be, you know, one foot at the door. This is supposed to be wholehearted, sincere service. So let's find out. The Gemara here ex- elaborates on exactly what's going on here. Bilga le'olam cholekit b'tarom. Tanara Banan, we have another b'rita that says, Maseba Miriam bat Bilga. So Miriam bat Bilga, um, person who's Bilga, whose name this watch bears, and she herself, um, you know, lost her faith, or in any case, she went and married, the, the Gemara here tells us, uh, she renounced her faith. So we don't really know exactly what she believed, but for practical matters, she certainly um, renounced her faith. And what did she do? She goes and she marries a soldier. That's the Sardiot word here, uh, which does not read like Hebrew or Aramaic for that matter. Right? Um, and who? so she finds a soldier or she goes off to marry a soldier who's serving the Greek kings. So then the story goes, and I don't know how realistic this is from a historical perspective, but the story goes here that when the Greeks came and entered the Hechal there, she was with them, and she kicked off her sandal on the Mizbeach. Uh, she said, locus, locus, locus meaning wolf. I'm, you know, trusting that this is Greek or close enough to the Greek, ancient Greek, um, maybe from, I, I see a note that says Lukos, but I don't want to pr- pretend that I can pronounce the ancient Greek either. This, that, but that's the point, right? Meaning that she's she's there in the Hechal, in this area where there is this um, Mizbeach, and she says, wolf, you know, Ad matai Yisrael until when will you gobble up the property of the Jewish people, but you won't stand with them right when they're in trouble, when they have a shadad chak? You know, so what that means is it seems to be a disparagement of, I, I think, of the divine, meaning that this is a rebuke to God, but it's, but it's done in such a demeaning kind of way, right? That she, this idea that you kick off your shoe is something that we see throughout halacha, Throughout this ancient kind of world, right, we see it specifically in the in the ceremony of chalitza that if the if a woman whose husband died, they don't they don't have children, and the husband has a brother, right? So then the brother is supposed to marry the widow, and it's called a levirate marriage, right? That's the whole idea of um, making sure that there will be children, a progeny, who follow in the brother's name. But if this woman doesn't want to marry that man, the brother 
then what they do is, right, he, she, he basically, there's a special chalitza shoe, and she basically, he takes it off, whatever, and she spits in it, and, uh, and they go on their separate merry ways. Point being, again, there seems to be this kind of like uh, the most, the, a very strong way to demean another person, to put down another person, would have been something in like taking off your shoes, spitting on the shoes. It's something with the shoes is the idea that, you know, if they're on and you're walking around with shoes, then you are acting with kavod. And if you do not have them on, listen, this is a bigger topic, I'm sure it would be interesting to pursue. Um, but in any case, so the question, the story goes here. So the, what happens? She says this nasty thing, you know, how you're not going to stand with the Jewish people when they're in trouble. And what that means then is that when Chazal, when Chazal heard that all this had happened, so then this becomes the punishment to the Mishmar of Bilgah, that they let her get away with this, really, right? That the sages heard about it, that the Mishmar, so it seems, um, on because of her rudeness um, at the altar. But there's other views, of course, in the Gemara that it wasn't because of her. So perhaps they were excuse me, penalized for a different reason. Specifically, that the Bilga Mishmar was late getting to the Beit Mikdash, which meant that the people who were supposed to be leaving, specifically Yishavav, um, then what that means is that the, the people who are leaving and the people who are coming are all kind of like, I don't know what, entering and leaving at the same time. And this, of course, is not really what's supposed to happen. But the idea then is that the watch um, of the brother enters, let's see, they so they come together, but she So they're they're serving in place of them, which is not really what's supposed to happen. So we have a claim, right? It's a well-known claim that the neighbors of a wicked person do not get any benefit. You know, their, their neighbor is wicked. But but in this case, right, the idea that Bilga Bilga's neighbors profited. How so? Because Bilga's always dividing his bread in the south, so that even if even when they were incoming, so Yeshivav is dividing in the north, even when they're outgoing. Um, now, wh- again, I have a question about why this why this is considered um, woe, right? Woe is to the neighbor who does this, or you know, we generally want to say that the wicked do not prosper. It's not clear to me how there's prospering going on, except for that, again, Bilga seems to want to be in the South, this Mishmar, this watch wants to be in the South, and they make their way where they kind of look like they're on their way out when they're not. Okay, the Gemara goes on. I'm not going to read all the words here, um, but the next claim is that, no, the Mishmar Bilga was penalized because when they came late, right, the, the question is, why were they all penalized, right? Like, if it's Miriam's fault, then let her be penalized. What does or her father too? But what about everybody else? And then this is where Abaye says, and I think that this is fantastic. Amar Abaye in kida amar inche shoted yenuka b'shuka oda avua oda ima ime. Um, that the the reason 
Bilga and apparently his wife for Miriam's, um, you know, denigrating behavior in the at the Mizbeach is this claim that, you know, people don't fall far from their parental tree, uh, right? The idea that the Miriam herself surely imbibed this um, uh, chutzpahic attitude towards God and the altar and the service and so on from home, right? Otherwise, she would never dare to do such a thing. Um, and then again, the Gemara says, well, why should everybody be penalized because this was poor, you know, poor parenting. Does it make sense to penalize the entire watch? And then, um, there's a very famous principle that woe unto the wicked person and woe unto his neighbor, meaning be careful of the company that you keep. And the flip side as well, that the good, as good comes to the righteous person, so too good will come to the neighbor of the righteous person. And this verse is from Isaiah, from the prophet Yeshayahu. But the thing that I find most striking here is that through all of this masachet, which is, as you're saying, as you said, it's far-ranging in terms of topic and in terms of the many mitzvot of this holiday, we end in a discussion of the Mishmar that is a little bit far afield, Certainly, it's not anything that's in practice nowadays, but the messages that the Gemara itself, you don't have to even go to Rashi, right? I mean, the, the Gemara itself here in the name of Abaye pulls out from this are about being, you know, working towards righteousness, which is certainly a theme of this time of year, the time of year of Sukkot, but also specifically about neighbors. And as I said at Arsium, and as I would say, I think it's very interesting that our daf ends on a discussion of what does it mean to be a good neighbor you know, that if you are good, your neighbors will have a good situation or, God forbid, the opposite. Likewise, you with whom you choose to be a neighbor of. Because Sukkot, when we step outside and we step into the Sukkot and we live everybody outside in their Sukkot, we are much more susceptible to the foibles of our neighbors because everybody can hear everybody. You know, everybody's kind of part and parcel of, of where everybody else is, unless you live in like really, you know, a very... Um, a very, what's the opposite of urban, a very countrified kind of area. But certainly when we're talking about the ancient world where homes are quite close to each other, this discussion is really that the Sukkot are going to be close to each other and pay attention so that Tov Tzadik, Tov that should be your reality and not that of the Russia. I think in Israel, you always see that, that you can walk around on the streets on Sukkot and you hear everybody in their sukkahs, and it's actually one of the nicest things, uh, hearing people singing, talking, benching, eating. Um, and so, you know, I, I will always think of this staff now and, and what you brought to this, Anne, uh, wh- when I get that. Um, so I guess with that, we have finished Masachet Sukkah, Hadron Alach Masachet Sukkah. Hopefully we'll return to you again. Uh, discussion for the day. Break us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this tap on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. Till tomorrow, go and learn.